Hello, welcome again to Sport and Lock, going through all the week's sports news with me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Mike Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times with no orders from anyone about how much airtime anyone needs to get. Unlike, as we discovered this week, Martin, at the World Cup in Qatar. Yes, so um, our regular feature on this podcast, uh, the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino. Uh, it's emerged that he um, he was the subject of, of, of directives issued by uh, the host broadcasting service, H- HBS, um, who uh, cover, they, they provide the feed to all the broadcasters of the World Cup. And so they, they, they issued instructions via email to the directors of every match saying, you must do this, you must do this, which is sort of standard practice. But one of those things included that you must feature a, a, a clip of Gianni Infantino um, at the match, um, at every match he attended. And uh, on no account should he, he be filmed while on his mobile phone. Um, and actually, at, at, in at least one case, he was filmed on his mobile phone and that, and that led to a reprimand of, that, of, of being issued because of that. And the, the other thing, which I suppose is sort of more understandable, just if he's um, filmed next to a sheikh, then um, for cultural sensitivities, he should only be filmed from the knee up. I don't think Seth Blatter ever did something like this, or well, there was no directors about you know making sure he was featured. Probably the opposite. Maybe Seth Blatter would have asked for a particular TikTok clips or something had it existed in his time. But this is a FIFA event. It's the FIFA World Cup. Gianni Fantino is the FIFA president. Isn't it logical to show him in situ at a game? And it was only asking for once per game. It wasn't like show him every 10 minutes. But who for? Who is that for, Rob? Why, why, why is it logical to show uh, this suit sat in the stands where the, the millions of people, billions of people maybe worldwide, are looking at what's happening on the field? Why, why does the chap, um, why does, I guess, what the way Zeke's described it, it was like um, a rider from a, um, a, a pop star or even like an emperor from back in the day. Never, never look him in the eyes directly. Only look at his shoes when you're talking to him and, uh, you know, when you're serving him food. I wonder what other directives there were. It reminds me, you know, Zeke's, like, I'd like um, M&Ms, but you must take the blue ones out, for example. Um, what, what is this about, Zeke's? Yeah, I, I, it does look as though it's, it's a sort of a promotion exercise to me. Um, so I, I do know that previously, I mean, and we're talking about HBS has done um, World Cup since 2002. And I do know that um, it was standard practice, even from the start, for there to be sort of directives about, you know, making sure that you don't embarrass VIPs, for example. Um, so, you know, if, if, if say, the, Nelson Mandela was at the 2010 World Cup, there was, I think, directives, you know, making sure that, it, because he was quite poorly at the time, I, I guess, you know, making sure that that was handled sensitively. However, this... In, under Blatter's era, from what I understand, there was never any directive saying he must be featured at every match he attends. In fact, I actually think I seem to remember uh, after he was booed at the on the uh, he appeared on the big screen in two thousand six in Germany. After that, it was made very clear that they didn't want him to be pictured at the matches he was attending. Well, it actually, happened here as well. Um, if you remember. Gianni Infantino appeared on the screen, I think, in the in the stadium, 
at the England-Wales game. And then he was booed, obviously. I mean, um, maybe there were people applauding too. Um, but the, the jeers were louder than perhaps the cheers of that game. And then what happened after, having attended some of these games, the, the feed we got on our screens as media in the stadium did feature Gianni Infantino. But that wasn't shown in 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 the stadium after after that. So I do remember seeing him at, on my screen at least within the stadium at every game I, I would have covered. That he there was a, there was that one one at least one one uh, image of of um, the, the FIFA president there. Maybe that was just a particular feed bespoke for you, so you could see Gianni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was actually. I've got to like um, let you guys know. See, the person he was texting. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, <laughs> no, um, uh, Rob, you, you mentioned it earlier. You said, you know, he is the FIFA president and it's the FIFA World Cup. But do these people need an image that enormous? Or is it, you know, he spent a lot of time in the Gulf where the cult of personality of, say, his friend MBS or, or we were in Qatar, the, the, the Emir of Qatar, Sheikh Tamim, whose image is everywhere. Like in, in that region, the all powerful leader is is a thing perhaps in a different way to maybe where where from where Gianni's from in Europe perhaps do, do you think with FIFA that that cult of leadership is really that important well we're certainly seeing that with Gianni Infantino very much the focus is on him him being associated with powerful people being seen in scenarios that are linked with power just this week posting more pictures from the G20 summit he went to before the World Cup he's done the kind of a sort of photo dump. There he is with Joe Biden, the US president. It looked like a sort of very quick picture. And we see him more with these big political figures than with regular fans. He wants that sort of status and acclaim, doesn't he? It can appear like. Yeah, it's a a strange one um, that this, you know, when you get to become FIFA president and, you know, what do you do? You know, what what do you want to be seen as? and I think it, you know, that that all plays into this. Um, one sort of slightly interesting side note to this uh, is that HBS um, is owned by Infront, which is uh, formed by uh, Sepp Blatter's nephew, Philippe Blatter. So there is a sort of connection there. And that, in turn, is owned by the Chinese group Wanda, which is a major FIFA sponsor. Some might ask... Why do we focus so much on Gianni Infantino? Why is he held to account like this? We talked a lot about Salt Bay, but he does sort of see himself akin to a sort of national leader, so held to account as such, doesn't he? Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, we've just had the world. We've been building up to the sort of most controversial World Cup ever. Um, we've just had it, and so clearly, he's going to be you know front and center of of our attention um, and a lot of people's. And <laughs> it's like he actually wants to be front and centre of people's attention. He also has various legal issues as well, doesn't he? The fact is he's still under criminal investigation in Switzerland. And just this week, there were fresh developments with new questioning of him. Yeah, but, you know, you do wonder what's going on with that Swiss Swiss investigation. They've gone through, I don't know how many prosecutors here. We get a few um, bits of information dripping out now and again that, Gianni's been questioned or, or this guy's been questioned, but this has been years, this this thing. I mean, it's very hard to understand what the Swiss process is like. And, and there's a, from, from the beginning, from 
Gianni Infantino. And do you remember also that that press conference that Alistair Bell gave a few years ago now, where he was it's quite fire and brimstone about Alistair, the Deputy General Secretary at FIFA, and he was speaking out saying that it would cause damage to FIFA. Yeah, about about the about the you know the prosecution. Then there was this, then the story started emerging that FIFA is you know slowly trying to maybe even leave Switzerland, uh, perhaps as a reaction to, to some of this or or as an effort to to um saber rattle with the swiss prosecutors like stop doing whatever it is you're doing but what, what are they doing do you think i mean it's years well remind us what this case relates to it is undocumented meeting with the swiss attorney general at the time michael lauber why does the onus fall on gianni fantino he's, he's accused of is it colluding in some way over this yeah, I mean, this, I think, um, was John Infantino trying to sort of ascertain if FIFA was facing any more issues over the, the, the corruption scandal from before his time. Um, so you can say, you know, from at least one uh, argument would be that he was just, you know, doing Yeah, but job. see, the, um, the big point here was the, the fact everyone's forgotten what they were talking about at the meeting, right? There was three meetings and no one remembers a word of what was said. That was said, yeah. I think it's more. I think it's more an issue for Michael Lauber, who was um, the, the Swiss prosecutor at the time, than for Infantino. Um, if you if you reverse the roles, for example, if you're speaking to the the, the highest prosecutor in the country, um, you'd expect that they, you know, that they would be, you know. They 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 call the they call the shots, not you. Yeah, that the onus falls on them. You, that's what you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rob, what was the, Rob? What was the phrase though with that? I think it was um, collective amnesia. Uh, that's what the the report into this thing found. And again, it's it's this could be cleared up really quickly though, couldn't it? Uh, what where this this initially came from football leaks in 2018. Uh, the the first meeting was revealed, and subsequently three other meetings took place. Um, in, in these hotels that turned out that the meetings were arranged by Gianni Infantino's childhood friend and other prosecutor, Rinaldo Arnold. Um, and drinks were ordered, snacks were ordered, according to, 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 uh, to, to, to the reports there. And no one remembers what, what was said at any of these meetings. And also the identity of a mystery fifth person, apparently, that, again... And it's this, though, isn't it? That the the murkiness, the murkiness. Yeah, that's that's the word for it, isn't it? And of course, for however frustrated Gianni Infantino gets with the media in particular, this isn't brought up all the time. It wasn't brought up during the World Cup, which it could have been. The fact he's under this investigation, and as you're saying, there was talk of moving the FIFA headquarters. They wanted it to be known, and they have opened this new branch in Paris, where things like the transfer clearinghouse is based. And Gianni Infantino has seen to be particularly close to the French Federation president, Noel Legret, who's on the FIFA Council. Although, as of this week, he's now no longer, temporarily at least, the French Federation president. Stepping down under pressure, not necessarily from allegations of sexual harassment that have been brought against Legret, but the fact he disrespected one of the French greats, uh, Zinedine Zizane, on Sunday when he was being asked about him not taking on the France job. I mean, the harassment allegations are pretty serious in themselves. Uh, uh, an agent in her thirties saying he was, she was propositioned by him. Um, 
it came up and he you know, had open bottles of champagne and was trying to sort of get into bed or sort of pretty seedy. But you're right, it is the uh, disrespecting Zidane um, provoked a sort of response from Mbappe, the French sports minister, Real Madrid. And yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that seemed to prompt this decision for him to step aside. Um, but it's actually quite significant for international football as well because Legray is running for the FIFA Council um, again um, against Fernando Gomez of Portugal. Uh, and I think the election is Well, a friend in of um, UEFA, Fernando Gomez, I understand. The, the, the hierarchy of, of UEFA is certainly enamoured with Fernando Gomez, isn't it? He's the go-to guy when Champions League finals need to be moved. Um, and um, there is a big Portuguese connection to to UEFA. So I imagine Fernando Gomez might be a favourite, particularly in light of this. But Rob, the um, those harassment allegations Martin mentioned, they're, they're the, only the most recent. There have been other ones. And equally, you know, there's this, there is this um, question mark over um, how the French FA has treated more serious allegations of predatory behaviour at Claire Fontaine, it's it's um, famous youth academy um, dating back several years. So it's funny in in a sense. The French national football teams have been doing extremely well on the field. Obviously, they won the World Cup in 2018, and in the final again just now, um, the, the women's team has, has been has been okay. Um, but 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 off the field within the organisation as well. I remember um, we we wrote a story. Um, last year about a toxic culture within the football federation in France, headed by Noel Legrette and um, the the secretary general there, Florence Ardouin, and um, there was a um, an internal inquiry as to the culture. It, it seems um, it seems kind of obvious that maybe the time has come for this guy to to move aside. Um, but I guess the FIFA Council job, Martin, it's quite hard to give up. Three meetings a year for three hundred grand, right? Yeah, three hundred thousand dollars, or I think is it, or two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, two hundred fifty thousand. Three hundred thousand, I think, if you're one of the more senior yeah, ones. But, I think that's that's right. But and also five hundred dollars a day per DMs while on attending World Cup matches or any FIFA business. So not bad, is it? Um, Interestingly, Legray is 81. Uh, he's standing, it's a UEFA election, but he can't go on the UEFA executive committee because he's 11 year old is older than the age limit, yet he can run for the FIFA council through UEFA. Yeah, well, have, for me, the whole system of these committees seems, seems really strange, quite an anachronism. Uh, you know, if you look at, well, particularly at FIFA, if you look at where the big decisions are being made now, it's that bureau of 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 the vice presidents of the confederation or the presidents of the confederations coming together with Gianni Infantino and 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 deciding what's what's going to happen, the council seems to be a, a rubber stamping um, collective as ever. Not much discussion, particularly from uh, a lot of the members never speak or contribute anything. You, you have to wonder why FIFA is wasting all of this money and keeping this structure in place. Like what? It seems more of a political job almost a favor for favored people be it at a confederation level when they deliver these people or, or, or for fifa like what's the point of this i think it's about 11 10 million dollars a year that goes goes out for this committee yeah 
Yeah, good question. Um, the talking of anachronisms, the, there's also going to be an election in April at UEFA for the British FIFA vice presidency, um, which the, this is a historic thing. Goes back to 1947. Um, Britain has its own is the only country which has this, this sort of special um, arrangement where it has its own FIFA vice president. At the moment, it's David Martin from Northern Ireland. Uh, he was elected a couple of years ago. But Debbie Hewitt, the new FA chairwoman, is going to run against him. Um, so, And that's another UEFA vote. I think it's I mean, it'll be an interesting one. What what do you make of this? I mean, it, I suppose it would be a chance to, to get um, a woman on the FIFA council. There are not many of those. What do you think about uh, how Dave Martin? I've not really heard a, 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 a much from from him or his contribution to, to football more generally. But I did see him at the World Cup. He was very very keen to attend as many games as possible. Um, so so that was that was good. But more more broadly, and this this is another reason why when when um, England we we'll stick to England here for for a second. But this British vice presidency is one example. This exceptionalism, this special place. When when you're bidding for things or trying to get support. How do you think having this secured place just for British people on the FIFA Council will go with, with members of the other nations? Like, Why, why should Britain have a, a, a continue, I guess, to have this special reserved seat? No, it, it shouldn't, actually. And I think you're right. It would be a good, it would be a good idea for them to, to withdraw from it and suggest it just becomes another UEFA place. Um, I mean, traditionally, UEFA likes to give, you know, the, the Germans, a, a, for example, a, a seat on, on FIFA. So you could have that sort of much more informal arrangement. I think that would be better. Um, the other thing is, you know, why why does Debbie Hewitt want to get onto the FIFA Council? Now, I think part of the reason is, is frustration that David Martin provided no support at all at own the armband um, issue during the World Cup with European countries, including England and Wales, wanting to wear the, the One Love armband. FIFA, at the last minute, said no, um, and there was there was you know no interaction at all from their representative on FIFA. So I think that was a, a frustrating factor. But the only thing I'd say is that if you look back, you know, from what David Gill was the last English FIFA vice president, um, and I, you know, he was, from what I understand felt very, very frustrated by the role at all. It sort of felt it achieve very little. Um, and it, it also just brought him a lot of, of negative so attention, didn't it? And David's particularly sensitive to stuff, I guess, like like that as well, isn't he? David, I think David Martin does have a lot of sort of supporters amongst sort of lesser known countries. So I wonder how he's got that, that support. What the reason is it? Because it's another small, this thing about smaller, medium countries sticking together, maybe. But see, see this armband thing you... you you mentioned. I mean, what do they expect him to do? Uh, what would, what what was he supposed to do? And isn't the wasn't the ball in in their court as well? If you if you see how that thing actually um, unfolded, having David Martin being one voice in in that in that in that in that debate wouldn't have really moved the dial. The the point was, if those seven nations had stuck together and had um, you know a bit more um, commitment, perhaps. To, to wearing the armband altogether, maybe they would have done it. I think blaming David Martin for not standing up for them is a is a bit of a, you know, it's not doesn't 
So it wouldn't have made, wouldn't have moved the dial much in, in, in that debate. But it was just completely missing from the discussion and he has no public profile at all. And the sense is, if you are being paid that much money, if you are being elected on as the British V for Vice President, should you actually have any public accountability? Should fans hear from you and what you stand for? Because it's unclear what David Martin does. No, that's, 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 you get right to the nub of the, the matter. What is the point of this FIFA Council, what, what, what are any of them doing? There's some of them, maybe a handful of them are into the detail doing some work um, and maybe, but broadly speaking, they're not doing anything. Well, they don't even get to vote on the, uh, the World Cup no, host anymore, no, do they? No, no. So, and in, uh, during pandemic, it was, it, was on, it, was on, it was on Zoom. And I think maybe it should always stay on, on, on Zoom if they were able to, to do that. It's, it's flying these people all around the world. To, to come and like hang out for a bit and um, and then a, like, a communique goes out about something that either was already decided before or, or rejected because the biggest voices, either, you know, like the UEFA president, the AFC president and, and FIFA and CONCACAF, etc., get together beforehand. It, it just seems a total waste of time. Do you really want to be advocating for more virtual meetings, though, particularly for the council, the one chance often we get to see some of these people? is when they do have to sort of wander through into a corridor where they do gather. That was certainly the case at the World Cup in Qatar for some of them. So at least in terms of a slight bit of media accountability, the fact they are meeting face-to-face perhaps does help us get the chance to see them. And it is a body that, as we say, the English FA chair, Debbie Hewitt, hopes to be part of. But she's actually had more pressing matters closer to home in the last week or so because she along with the FA have been meeting with the Premier League and the EFL all about the future of the English game so what is this all about a really big shake up in English football which I think we've talked about before more money for the lower leagues um, and ending parachute payments ending FA Cup replays changing the League Cup um, they, they haven't got anywhere yet but it is at the back against the background. I think in the next three weeks we'll see the white paper come out on this football regulator. And I've just, I just, I've got some of the details about what it will look like. And I just want to think, see what you thought about it, guys. I mean, the um, this waiting for this regulator a long time. I thought it was going to take over the disciplinary functions of the leagues and the FA, but it, it appears not. All it will do, it will monitor the owners and directors of the clubs and the clubs will have to provide a business plan every year to show they're financially sustainable to get a license and if they if they're not sustainable then they might have to drop down a, a division or so um as, as happens in germany but in terms of the disciplinary functions I th- the idea is that that will be too um too much a, of a government intervening in in the running of the game, apparently. So it's oh, not going to have that function. Yeah, what, what I thought that was going to be the, the main function because what you described there, certainly for the Premier League, from the end, the days of Richard Scudamore, the former chief executive, and I guess the executive chairman by the end of it, wasn't he? Um, the the clubs have to already provide forward forecasting in the Premier League at least, for, for three to five years or something like that. So it kind of already re- really exists. And the Premier League club hasn't been anywhere near going bust for since Portsmouth time, I don't think. Like, that's why it came in, and that's all been quite fine. 
And when you say monitoring owners and directors test, that also seems a bit weak as well. Like monitoring or or being the decisive actor, that's that's another that's another important thing. And what what does that look like? I think for the fans, I think there's a transparency point here. Like that's what everyone would like to see. Um, and with discipline, would they not be the fact they haven't got oversight of discipline as well? Is is another interesting element, and again, we've talked about this. And I, you know, we're now entering year five of the Premier League's investigation into serial champions Manchester City and alleged breaches of financial fair play. Um, how how could that just keep going on? What does that investigation look like? Why is there no um, clarity for for the um, for the public and maybe even for rival teams as to? what kind of league they're playing in and who they're playing against. Is is this not what maybe this independent regulator should be looking at? I think there's a, yeah, there was a, I always think there was a strong argument for, for having independent oversight of disciplinary issues because, you know, otherwise you have the Premier League investigating its own employers. Um, but yeah, uh, so, but no, it's not going to have that. I mean, the one thing it, it will, when I say monitor the owners and directors test, I think it will carry out those checks. So that, that is, I guess, an important thing. Um, and it will also have the, the sort of the final power over financial settlement so that if the Premier League and the EFL and the FA cannot come up with a agreed formula and some of money for a financial settlement, then it will have the power to impose one. Um, so, but I, you know, I think it's, yeah. I mean, obviously, if it's going to stop clubs going to the wall, um and there's some worrying things at the moment happening at West Bromwich Albion. Um, they've just taken out a big £20 million loan from MSD. Uh, and you know, the worrying thing about that for the supporters is that's exactly what Derby County did about a year before it went into administration. So if, if, if this is a sort of gamble to get him back in the Premier League and it doesn't come off, then it, it could be worrying times ahead. And, you know, maybe that sort of thing that an independent regulator could yeah, step that in. Usually um, um, high interest loans, those ones from companies like MSD. T- tell you one thing that is quite hard to keep track of. Because of the, the pandemic losses and all the allowances for, for clubs at um, you know local level and also at, at UEFA level when it comes to financial fair play and regulations like that, I, I, I've seen this enormous amount of spending by some clubs. That seems almost um, out of kilter with what the regulations would suggest. Um, Chelsea, for example, have spent more than £300 million since um, Clear Lake bought, bought the, the team for £2.5 billion. It, you know, and it, It's a club that already records heavy losses almost year in, year out. Um, and it seemed to, seemed to, to be spending with, 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 with abandon. Um, uh, you know, Martin, we've talked about this. Maybe, maybe it's because one of the reasons is this: um, the long contracts they they offer players they're signing. Do you want to explain that a bit? Yeah, so we've seen a couple of players uh, at least come in and sign seven-year contracts, and I think it's the uh, we've seen which is the longest um, Chelsea have ever offered before. And it, it's probable that this is to do with um, financial fair play because. The your transfer fee is spread over the length of your contract, um, as in, um, according to a process called, called amortization. So, um, say you buy somebody for seventy million pounds, 
when you're doing your financial fair play calculations, that's spread over seven years. So actually, it only appears in your accounts as as ten million. Um, so that's that's probably the reason for that. Um, one of the players who signed a seven year contract is David Datro Fafana, um, and player from the Ivory Coast, twenty year old striker who um, has signed from Mold in Norway. Uh, for 13 million euros, but is now at the centre of a court dispute between Mould and his former club in Ivory Coast, Abidjan City. Some really good investigation work by Josemar website, Lars Johnson here, yeah. Um, Tarek. Um, yeah, it, it was um, another kind of, seems like at least in the face of another grubby episode involving agents, clubs and players and and a bit of a tawdry dispute where the player Fofana was at at his team in Abidjan in in, in the Ivory Coast. Um, the club appeared to be in, according to the report, in negotiations, good faith negotiations, with a bunch of other clubs, including some in France, um, negotiating a transfer. They allowed Fofana to go on trial, I think, in in mould. Oh, Molde. Um, next thing you know, the club had had signed him without paying a transfer fee to to Abdijan, with the family apparently saying he didn't have a contract, and this agent appearing saying he didn't have a contract with the Abdijan team, and um, and lo and behold, he's a he's a player for this Norwegian team, gets transferred for big money to to Chelsea, the 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 team in the Ivory Coast leagues seems to have only got um training compensation which is a fifa which is a fifa um uh, clause right but that would mean that he was signed with the abdijan team if they've got to pay the training compensation i know crazy 70,000 euros they've got obviously they they want a lot more the other interesting thing about this um which lars is, has uncovered is that Molder, the the Norwegian team, they they have a there's a company, um, which includes many of the Molder directors, a separate company, which gets a chunk of future transfer fees relating to certain players. Now, that to me looks like third party ownership. Norwegian Football Association say it's entirely legal. It seems a really really weird one. Um, surely that's third party ownership if you're an independent company is is it has a an economic interest it, in the player. It looks what they said um, is that they have an economic interest in a in the basket of 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 transfers. So not not an individual player. But then, if you read uh, Lars's again, Lars, excellent work. If you're listening, um, his report it said it said they had interest with specific players. So again, that seems contrary to to the TPO rules that are barred, um, and uh, something maybe FIFA and its new transfer um, regulations and that that body that's going to be looking at all of that might want to focus on. Rob, well, the start of the new year sees various football clubs in play for potential takeovers. Both Liverpool and Manchester United are on the hunt for new owners, and we're hearing this week that. Qatar Sports Investments are interested in investing in the Premier League, currently owning Paris Saint-Germain. It's become very well known. In fact, Daniel Levy, the Tottenham chairman, was in Qatar between Christmas and New Year. He was also in Qatar during the World Cup. I think it was a 
FIFA Masters or some sort of FIFA course that he was speaking at with former players. At the time of the World Cup, when I interviewed Nasser Al-Khalifi, the PSG and Qatar Sports Investments boss, he was saying they weren't interested in investing in the Premier League. But certainly the impression of Qatar is they seem to be keen to be known they would be interested in investing in the Premier League. So how would the UEFA rules allow this if they're buying into a club that's in the same competition potentially as Paris Saint-Germain? I think I'm a minority stake, I think, under the rules. But I I don't think that should be allowed either. You know, because even if you have 25% of a club, you've still got a you still got an interest in it, haven't you? Um, even if you've not got control? I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think it, I, I think it, I, I don't think that should be permitted. No, no I, I agree. But again, it's it's this runaway part of the football industry, isn't it? We're seeing multi-club ownership models galore all over the place and no one um, looking to regulate it. I think FIFA looked at it, made a report and then didn't really <laughs> pronounce on it at all. And now it almost feels like it's too late. There's a, there's, a, there's a whole array of these companies now, particularly these American ones with a constellation of football clubs. And we had that funny situation, didn't we, with Red Bull. Clearly, clearly they own both Salzburg and Leipzig, but there is now a fudge that they've figured out a way, probably with the acquiescence of UEFA, so both of their teams can play in the Champions League. Yeah, what what is that fudge? I mean, the, the, the fudge uh, is um, changing the structure of the ownership and also changing. Um, I think the way the name of one of the teams is, uh, I think the team in, in, in Leipzig is, is something else. RB Leipzig is not actually Red Bull Leipzig. They actually are Rassen Ballsport Leipzig. They amalgamated words to create this construct so they could use RB while not being uh, Red Bull. And with the ownerships, UEFA determined that actually they were sufficiently distinct from each other. Well, there you go. Well, if you look at the branding of of the stadium, the team's shirt, the movement between the two teams, it doesn't seem particularly distinct. But again, it's what happens. Um, we're going to go back to governance again, aren't we, guys? This is exactly what happens when you have um, no overarching outside monitor over any of these football bodies. UEFA is as bad as the rest of them when it comes to um, finding out a fix that it requires or it wants to happen, it always finds a way, despite what the rules might be. Um, and it's not just a UEFA thing. FIFA will do this. The FA will do this. The Premier League will figure out a way. Um, because, yes, there are rules written down all the time for these organisations. It's, it's not a question of, are the rules any good? It's about enforcement. And, and sometimes rules aren't enforced as, as clearly and as transparently as they should be. Very often it all comes down to discovering things through leaks. And just a few months ago on the pod, we're talking about how leaks gave us an insight into how Gerard Piquet, the Barcelona player, was benefiting from the deal that took Spain's Super Cup to Saudi Arabia. Uh, various conversations with the Spanish FA head and Super Cup's been taking place this, this week in Saudi Arabia. But actually, it's other news regarding Gerard Piquet that's become of interest because amongst his other business interests was with tennis and his Cosmos company was actually in partnership with the International Tennis Federation over the Davis Cup. But that partnership worth several billion and meant to last 25 years is now over. 
Yeah, it, it, didn't you reshape the Davis Cup, Martin? Didn't it become a completely different competition? They 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 created a, a league system and almost tried to make it look a bit more like like a World Cup football style event. Clearly, that hasn't worked. Yeah, this was a revamp from the previous format where the Davis Cup at the top level would culminate in a head-to-head between two nations and perhaps that would only garner interest from fans of those countries or if there was particular players of really wide interest in it. So what it evolved into was, as we saw this year, 16 teams in the group stage and then the best eight qualifying for a final knockout tournament that featured singles and doubles matches to then determine the champions. And this had been envisaged to be a $3 billion 25-year partnership between PK's Cosmos and the ITF. And they did reduce some of that investment during the pandemic as uh, obviously we lacked fans at events and there was a heavy disruption. But attempts to renegotiate the partnership were unsuccessful by Cosmos. So it's ITF now out alone back with the Davis Cup again. And all this emerging as the first Grand Slam of the year begins with the Australian Open. But it's to another international sports event we turn to now, and it's snooker and the Masters that's been underway in London. But it's been without some of its leading players after a corruption scandal. Yeah, 10 players have now been suspended as part of this um, match-fixing inquiry by the, the World Professional Billiards and Snooker Association. Um this is, I mean, so quite a few. They're all Chinese players. Um, some of them are based in in Sheffield, actually, in, in England. Um, and it's a, yeah, I think, you know, amazing that some. If you look at the profiles of some of these people, some of the top players. I mean, I, I don't think anything like this in any other sport in recent years has happened. It's quite quite shocking. Probably gives you the scale of how big the um, the uh, the fix <laughs> might have been, or the betting market. For for um, for illegal gambling in China is because China is uh, one of the biggest markets for gambling where gambling is completely illegal. Um, so huge money there, and perhaps these guys clearly, you know, the ten of them is an insane number of of players there, um, potentially being tempted um, to to do something. Like that. The only parallel maybe is. Um, cricket from a few years ago it was some of the the very biggest players were caught up in in match fixing scandals with cricket um and and it required um some serious work from the um from the ICC didn't it yeah and while they're often calls for lifetime bans these can be difficult to enforce in court they can be challenged so even 5 years ago when Yu Delu a Chinese player he was banned for 10 years and 9 months in a match fixing investigation so we don't tend to see lifetime bans, do we? No, I think it's, it's actually quite difficult for sports bodies to impose lifetime bans um, for, for anything, actually, uh, these days. The Court of Arbitration for Sport that doesn't like them. Um, uh, it's, we've actually just seen a, a, a spot-fixing investigation launched this week as well in football um, in the FA Cup. And Oxford United defender getting booked against Arsenal suspicious betting patterns around that and it's one of those things where being able to bet on a player getting booked doesn't normally happen in the lo- not normally allowed by betting companies in the lower leagues but when you have a televised FA Cup match um, we've seen 
in the last five years, two players received lengthy bans. One um, for uh, played for Lincoln City for, um, when they had a run to the FA Cup quarterfinal. And then another a player playing for a non-league club against Shrewsbury Town that was televised. Um, he was banned last year. This is something else which has come up, but I'm not sure it's a sort of, it's obviously nothing like the, the sort of organised allegations against the snooker players. Obviously questions if there's been manipulation in any of those sporting contests. One event you go to where perhaps you're expecting scripted entertainment is WWE and uh, certainly the sport is of interest for a takeover and Saudi Arabia has been linked with them this week, although denials around that any deal is complete yet. Hang on, you're saying wrestling is scripted? No. Is that true? Breaking my heart. Is that is that true? So not to land some bombshell here so late into the pod. You tell me Big Daddy. Big Daddy didn't deserve all yeah, those wins. Giant Haystack should have got those zigs. Anyway, well, I suppose it's one of the few things <laughs> the Saudis haven't already tried to buy up, but maybe they will. You know, there yet. is there is a there is sense to it. There isn't I feel there's an inevitability, you know, a little bit with this one where smoke and fire, whether they buy the whole thing or some of it or whether they're into it, it is a property they, they like. Um, one of the first events, this kind of new Saudi openness to the world and to sport was actually a WWE event in in Saudi Arabia in the um, when we first got to learn about this fellow MBS and his ambitions for Saudi. He got WWE there, but there was a great story. I don't know if you guys remember this. There was there was. Um, the wrestlers arrived and there was a dispute over, I think, payment or something like this in, in Saudi. And um, they were held on the tarmac on their jet with some of these wrestlers claiming that they, they'd they been held hostage in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I think that was quickly cleared up. But it was a, a, a crazy story from the, the early foray of, of WWE in this, in this um, new phase of Saudi sports interest well it shows the interest perhaps in live sporting events and watching and listening to live sport and listening to podcasts about sports news as well great to catch up guys cheers all then thank you everyone for listening as ever we're at sport unlocked on twitter facebook and instagram goodbye for now